It's Monday, March 5th, 2018. You're listening to Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. Welcome back to another episode of Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, the podcast that puts Bitcoin knowledge within everyone's reach. As always, I'm your host, Josh Humphrey, and today we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. I know last week we uh, we talked about altcoins, and I kind of told you guys we were going to be talking about SegWit and some of the scaling debate stuff. And to help me do that, I've invited a friend of mine, Clark Moody, who's been in the space a lot longer than I have. He's actually the guy that got me into Bitcoin, and he has worked on various projects, and so... I'm going to let him help explain the things that were going on at that time. So without further ado, Clark, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. All right. So um, go ahead and kind of tell us, uh, tell the audience how you got into Bitcoin and kind of what you've worked on up to this point. I first found out about Bitcoin in early 2011 when I was in graduate school and a lab mate of mine was actually mining Bitcoin on one of the PCs in the lab. I took a screenshot and sent him an email and said, what is this? And he said, don't worry about that. You can shut it down. Well, of course I couldn't just not worry about it. So down the rabbit hole I went and only a few months later in early uh, June of 2011, I launched my real-time market data website, uh, bitcoin.clarkmoody.com, which is still active today. But back then it was just Mt. Gox real-time market data. And I was fascinated with the fact that you could get free market data for this thing that traded online. Fast forward a couple years and I built a a multi-exchange trading platform for Bitcoin called RTBTC, uh, the best name in the business. <laughs> and no, it's a horrible name. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but that was acquired by blockchain in early 2014. And just to be clear, we're saying blockchain.info, which is a company specifically. A lot of our uh, audience may not be aware. They may be kind of coming on recently, so they may not be aware of all the the names. So that's not the blockchain, but that is a specific company. We were not acquired by the blockchain, but we were acquired by blockchain.info. And I worked for them for a couple years. All the while, I'm still in grad school. So I haven't gone full time on Bitcoin at this point. And it wasn't until, say, 2016 that I actually started working for Bitcoin.com full-time and went ahead and dropped out of my PhD program because that wasn't going to uh, ever actually happen. And now I'm working for a company called Picks and Shovels and we're building portfolio management tools for crypto hedge funds, which have popped up recently. And we see really fantastic opportunity there. Great. So this is more um, bigger companies, enterprise type stuff that you guys will be working on? Our, Our target clients for Picks and Shovels will be crypto hedge funds that are managing millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency. Okay. For their various clients. That's correct. Okay. And then you also still have the um, exchange tracker and the street price monitor, which I've mentioned on this show before. That's right. I'm running those on the side. And uh, it's, it is it is a task to keep real-time data running all the time. So a lot of people enjoy it, though, and I, I have it on my screen. It's probably been on one of my monitors full-time for about two years now. Yeah, I have it running in the background most of the time. 
And so somewhere, I think, when you had RTBTC was when you first introduced me to Bitcoin. And uh, I haven't really talked about how I got into Bitcoin here, but that's probably too much time for this episode. We'll do that some other day. So let's talk about the block size limit. It is more or less one megabyte. And what is ex- what's the reasoning for that? So the origin of the block size limit was actually Satoshi adding that limit to the code early on. I don't know which version it was of, of Bitcoin, but it was an early version that added the block size limit, um, which meant that a maximum there was a maximum number of transactions that could fit in a block, which capped the throughput, the overall throughput of Bitcoin. Okay, and that was... A security measure, how does that make Bitcoin more secure or the the network more secure? Well, since every node on the network has to receive all transactions and all blocks, you could imagine a case where someone's some malicious miner starts creating huge blocks which jam up not only the bandwidth but the processing capability, the CPU processing capability, and to some extent the disk space of other miners on the network. And if a malicious miner can cause other miners to fail to process blocks quickly, then that miner can get ahead in the game and process more and more blocks ahead of the competition and make more money. Okay, okay, I see. All right, and so my understanding is that at some point, as Bitcoin became more popular and more transactions were going through on the network, um, it became an issue of contention with some people thinking that in order to make things more usable, the block size should be increased. That's correct. Okay. So, what kind of when? About what time did this start to become a real problem? I became aware of the block size debate. Well, not really debate. I, I became aware of the block size problem and limit early in early 2014. People were already talking about it. And what was happening or prior to that, Bitcoin itself had a soft limit of 750 kilobytes in Uh, the mining software. And so the first blocks to run up against that limit began around that time, I believe. And so if you go back in the block size history charts, you'll find a lot of 750 kilobyte blocks uh, going along. And that's because it was kind of a soft limit in the software to keep you from hitting that hard limit of one megabyte, which was a consensus rule on the network. Okay, and so what... I guess, what are the arguments for and against raising the block size? See, the argument for raising the block size is kind of the obvious argument. Okay, you've got a limit to how big a block can be, which means there's a limit to the total throughput of the Bitcoin network, the number of transactions per second. And if you just raise that limit, then you can increase the throughput of the network. It makes a lot of sense, easy to understand, and you get a linear increase in throughput. You double the block size, you get twice as many transactions per second. And how difficult is that on a, on a development coding side? 
it's relatively straightforward. It's more than just one line of code because there are a lot of tests, but the actual technical difficulty of deploying a block size limit for the software itself is relatively straightforward. And then on the flip side, why were many people against raising the block size? In order to raise the block size limit, it requires a hard fork of the Bitcoin network. So the first challenge is the network effect challenge. And a hard fork means that everyone has to upgrade their software to the latest version, or people will find themselves on a fork of the network that no miners are still on. And so you could be sitting here running your Bitcoin node, using it as your wallet, and one day the fork happens, and now you no longer recognize the blocks for the rest of the network, and you're stuck. So everyone has to upgrade for a hard fork to be sustained and, and work for everybody. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge is of the actual resources required to process bigger blocks. So if you go through and uh, the Bitcoin Core organization put together a blog post a while back about how they're scaling Bitcoin prior to any sort of the SegWit or anything like that. They had this blog post about how they're scaling Bitcoin and they point out that if you tried to run an earlier version of Bitcoin now with the current network usage, it wouldn't ever keep up because the algorithms and the processing capability of the software itself has gotten so much better. So much computer science and development has gone into it. And Bitcoin nodes can still run on modest hardware, but some of them are just barely keeping up with the demand of the network on modest hardware. And that's with one megabyte blocks. And if you increase the blocks uh, size, then that increases the total amount of transactions that nodes have to process in order to keep up with the network itself. There are lots of issues within the script processing and and some limits that were put in the code and uh, some things like that that uh, are a little bit more technical But the short answer is on on this piece is that the technical capability of your node itself has to increase to keep up with the blocks. And we want to keep the Bitcoin network decentralized, which means as many people as want to can participate in the network. They may not be able to mine because mining is a much more specialized discipline now than it ever was uh, in the past but they will be able to participate fully in the peer-to-peer network, broadcast their transactions, and verify uh, that their funds are secure. And the more, the more that the network is unusable to kind of the long tail of people who want to participate, then the more they have to rely on third parties to access the Bitcoin network, like you know, phone wallets, uh, web wallets, things like that. Don't rely on your own node. They rely on somebody else's node. And that damages decentralization. Right. And so that gets back to kind of what um, I talked about last week on the altcoins on some of them. The more centralized you get at some point when you're relying on other people, then how are you different from PayPal or something like that? Right. And the whole point of Bitcoin is don't trust 
verify. So you can verify that the money supply is intact, that your coins are owned by you, uh, weren't counterfeited, and, and that um, nobody else's transactions were counterfeited either. So you verify the whole blockchain for yourself to prove that you're, you own your own coins. And so with this, um, not only do the blocks themselves take up more space, right, on a, a obviously like a, a one to two megabyte or however much you want to increase that block size itself, the time required to sync your node, you know, if you're starting a node, my understanding is right now, how long does it take even with the one megabyte block size? If I, if I you know, wanted to start a brand new node, start from zero, how long is it going to take me on the blockchain to, to sync up to what's happening current? It could take a couple days. And I forgot to mention that, well, let's go back. The whole blockchain, I think, is in the realm of 150 megabyte, 150 gigabytes large. So that's not impossible for disk space. You know, there are like little tiny micro SD cards that fit in your phone that are 256 gigs or whatever. Uh, disk actually isn't the limiting factor now it's network bandwidth. And so if you don't have enough network connectivity and speed to keep up with large blocks, then you may not even be able to download the blockchain fast enough uh, as it's coming live. I'm not even talking about the initial sync, which is kind of what you mentioned. Starting from zero, how long does it take to get up and running with Bitcoin? That could take a couple of days with a good internet connection and moderate, moderate hardware. Um, but just if you, if you already have the full blockchain and big blocks are coming in, then you may not even be able to download them fast enough. You could imagine a scenario where let's say we want to get to visa scale, 40,000 transactions a second. You may be looking at blocks that are 500 gigabytes or something, wow. I, you know, huge blocks you know, think about your own internet connection at home. Can you download 500 gigabytes every 10 minutes? Yeah, absolutely not. No, you can't. And so that would drive the only, the only nodes that could actually keep up with the network would be in data centers with very large internet connections to other miners. And that would be it. And, and, and um, nobody could keep up on their, on their personal internet connection if the blocks got too big. Right. And obviously that's a, you know, an extreme situation, but still, um, you know, it, it makes you think at, at what point, you know, it's kind of a slippery slope. It, you raise it to two and then at some point you fill up two and then you go, and then someone says, well, we should do four or eight or whatever. And, and where does it end? So, um, well, the, the problem, the problem with a block size increase from a computer science standpoint is that it's a linear, it's a linear trade-off. However larger the block size gets, that many more transactions could get in a block. Double the block size, double the transactions. So it's a linear trade-off. And in a distributed system, in a computer science um, setting, you want exponential trade-offs. We want Bitcoin to grow exponentially, so we need scaling solutions that are exponential in nature rather than linear in nature. 
Gotcha. Okay, so let's kind of talk about some of the events that happened leading up to the development and implementation of SegWit. I don't know, do we want to start with the Hong Kong Agreement or should it go back farther than that? I think we could start with the Hong Kong Agreement. Um, so what that was was a, a meeting in Hong Kong that was attended by some miners and some of the uh, Bitcoin Core developers. And they signed an agreement to the effect of the way to scale Bitcoin is first to implement technology called SegWit and then later follow that up with a block size increase. And there was some timeline given for how long it would take to implement SegWit. And then maybe I I forget the details, maybe a timeline for how long after that we'd talk about a block size increase. Well, being a programmer, I can tell you. Putting, putting a deadline on when code will be ready is one of the hardest things to get right as a programmer. It's probably impossible. Now, when you talk about programming for Bitcoin, which is a complex distributed system, it's very, very, very hard to get it right. You have to go very slow and have lots of tests to figure out whether or not your upgrade is going to hard fork the network and cause everything uh, to go into you know chaos and do what you want it to do. So, I mean, and what authority I guess did those developers have? You know, my understanding, um, because it's all basically voluntary. Like we said, some some of the developers are paid at their companies to work on this, but um, you know, no one can force you to work on it or not work on it. I mean, did they really have any kind of authority or legal representation of the rest of the development team? No, but they could have committed to say that we, the signers of the agreement, will work on SegWit with our time and we'll try to get it pushed in the code. Uh, But of course, you can't you can't sign an agreement on behalf of another volunteer contributor to some code. I don't I don't think that was the intention. I think the intention was this is this is our roadmap that we will push for in the development process. These are the next features that we'll add. But no, they don't. They didn't have any authority to to sign up somebody else, you know, to work on the code. And this is an interesting this is an interesting point because I feel like the way that the core development team was talked about by some of the prominent members of the Bitcoin community you kind of got the impression that they assumed that the core developers worked for them, that the protocol was made, you know, the, the Bitcoin development was basically supposed to serve the interests of, of large Bitcoin companies. When we're talking about a group of volunteers or independent contractors working on a, 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 an open source software package, it it'd be like Microsoft saying that, oh, we're gonna do something with Linux, and then saying, hey, Linux developers, you need to build something for us, and then getting mad when they don't. It, it's 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 a similar situation. Yeah, you you have. Um, I mean, I don't like to talk about it in in this sense, but I mean, essentially, at my work, my bosses have a sort of leverage on me, right? The, there's the uh, the threat of you could be fired or have disciplinary action, whatever, if I don't follow the rules. But if you have a volunteer, it's not like you can fire them. It's not like you can withhold payment from them. That's right. For not doing 
something that you're not paying them to do. That's right. Okay. And so this was this uh, this agreement in Hong Kong happened somewhere, I think, February of 2016. That sounds about right. Okay. So then, so they make this agreement. And, and so what happens? So after the Hong Kong agreement, development ensues uh, for SegWit. And because of the challenges of distributed systems programming, of course, it's delayed um, and is not, uh, SegWit is not deployed on time from the original agreement. All the while, Bitcoin begins to come out of an 18-month bear market. And the price on Bitcoin um, begins to recover. It didn't get back to $1,000 until the beginning of 2017, but all through 2016, it was kind of a gradual upward slope. Network uh, congestion was increasing. More and more people are using Bitcoin and the blocks are full at some point in, in late 2016, I believe. The blocks are all completely full. And when the blocks get full, the fees start going up. And so the reason why fees go up is because you need to compete with your transaction for block space. I don't know if you've talked about transaction fees on, on the show before. Right, that, that you pay more, more or less, to get uh, uh, a closer place in the queue. That's right. And so at the same time that the price is beginning to recover, the fees are actually going up and fees are always paid in terms of Bitcoin. But then the fees in dollar terms are now even higher because you have a higher price and a larger amount of Bitcoin for the fees. And so many, many people who got into Bitcoin saying that it's global instant free transactions well, now you've lost instant and free because you send a transaction with a small fee and it doesn't confirm for a long time. And so your other party doesn't think they got the funds or you pay a lot to get your transaction in quickly. And now it's very far from free to use the network. And so and so there, the the call, the idea of increasing the block size now becomes much more one of, well, we need relief. We need fee relief right now. Sure, it's only a linear increase. Sure, you know, we only double the throughput of the network if we go to two megabyte blocks, but the fees drop in half or more immediately because we open up that new space. And and in the in the realm of politics, which much of this became about politics. Simple solutions make sense, but it's very, very hard to reason about unintended consequences. And so uh, the the camps within Bitcoin arguing for larger blocks started other projects to have alternate implementations of Bitcoin that included a block size increase, a new development team, and a lot of the rhetoric around the Bitcoin core team began to start up at this time. Oh, the core team is delaying development. The core team is hurting Bitcoin because they're not increasing the block size. Um, the core team 
only cares about themselves and not about all the users that want to send cheap, fast transactions on the network. And that's very powerful rhetoric, especially when people's money is on the line. Sure, sure. And I, you know, I heard things like, oh, the cult of core. If you supported the uh, core developers and you supported not going with bigger block size, you were part of the cult of core. And over the course of this phase of the scaling debate, there were various proposals um, for for built-in block size increases into Bitcoin, including, uh, I think, BIP 101, maybe BIP 105, the Bitcoin improvement pro, uh, proposals in the low hundreds. Um, those were some of the block size increase proposals. All sorts of proposals on the map of uh, one-time two megabyte block size increase, a immediate two megabyte with a with a slow ramp up over time so we can plan for the block size, things like that. Um, and this is a, around the time that Gavin Andreessen had one of his proposals. I think it was BIP 101, and it got it. It failed to reach consensus among the development team, and so Gavin said, "Fine, I'm going to do a new implementation of Bitcoin called Bitcoin XT." Okay. And XT was the first of the alternate clients that would put us on a path toward larger blocks through a hard fork. And around this time, people started tracking the number of nodes on the network and the the client version on the network. So if you're looking at the XT nodes on the network, you say, oh, wow, the number of XT nodes is growing. That means that people are voting for going this direction. And when you say uh, clients, you're talking about other software that can run a Bitcoin node besides just Bitcoin Core. That's correct. And there are, even even now, there are four, maybe four clients that, that can run Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin J is Java, BTCD, Bitcoin D is the Bitcoin Core daemon, and... I'm probably forgetting a couple others, but uh, Bitcoin XT was just a fork of Bitcoin that added this uh, extension for larger blocks. Okay. And somewhere in all this is when uh, some of these altcoins that we talked about last week and some other ones I didn't mention because they've already kind of faded away in the meantime, started popping up as another uh, attempt at a response to this scaling issue. Is that correct? I believe Litecoin was created in 2013, maybe 2012. Uh, and Litecoin was a different mining algorithm and four times faster blocks. So two, two and a half minute blocks. So look, we have four times the throughput of Bitcoin immediately. Great. And there was definitely an altcoin boom in 2013 uh, at the, around the same time that Bitcoin went to 1,000 for the first time. People were saying... Things like Litecoin is the silver to Bitcoin's gold. So we need all these competing currencies. And so a lot of them spiked in price. And then most of them cratered out into nothingness uh, in 2014. And then again, I forget where we are on the timeline, but newer coins had come along with uh, greatly improved technology. Some of them around privacy, um, 
confidentiality, none of the coins had really faced the scaling challenge of Bitcoin. And, and the close, the only one that's really faced any challenges to this date are uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Around this time, though, since Bitcoin was expensive to use and slow, other coins began to get additional traction and say, oh, well, let's take our commerce. We need to get this transaction through. Well, let's use a different coin because it's pretty much free, pretty much instantaneous. We can do it. Great. And so there was renewed interest in altcoins to take some of the heat off of Bitcoin. Sure. Okay. We could probably go on all day here uh, if we chased every tangent and rabbit hole here. But uh, let's let's kind of jump up to when um, when SegWit was really developed and, and they, they figured out how to push it out. So SegWit was deployed with a process called BIP9 deployment, which is a method of miners signaling their readiness to upgrade by changing the block version number. So the rules are when over a two-week period, 95% of the blocks signal their readiness to upgrade, then the upgrade goes into effect. And it's purely a method of making sure and coordinating everyone making sure everyone's ready to upgrade. 95% is a very high threshold. Making sure ready, everyone's ready to upgrade through the blocks themselves and not any sort of side channel chat rooms or polls or anything like that. Because it's public, it's verifiable. That's right. Can't fake. You can't fake blocks. You have to do proof of work to get a block in the blockchain. And so this, I believe, was one of the greatest mistakes of the core development team was deploying with BIP9 because it immediately got interpreted as a vote, as a vote for SegWit, when there was nothing really, nothing else on the ballot. It wasn't like we had two competing implementations of some technology and the miners vote on which one they want and we go that direction. Um, and so since it was interpreted as a vote, uh, it put great power, perceived power into the hands of the miners. Uh, that they never really had. And so I don't think we'll use BIP9 again to deploy anything, uh, any further upgrades to the network. Um, because the, 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 the issue was if it never, if within one year it never reached that 95% over a two-week period, then the upgrade would fail. An alternate proposal to that makes the upgrade automatically succeed after a year. So it's it could it's going to activate after a year or sooner, rather than failing to off. Um, previous upgrades to the network were just everyone everyone upgrade the software and it comes online. Fine, you coordinate over a mailing list or something. But these ways of upgrading the network came along later. So now the miners have a bunch of of perceived power, and the the scaling debate, the scaling race. Within, with the block version numbers is on. And uh, SegWit still hasn't activated. Well, this is now early 2017, and a proposal comes along to upgrade, uh, to, to activate SegWit by the users. And this is the user-activated soft fork. And what this does is it says, the important nodes on the network are users rather than miners. 
And so we, the users, will begin to reject blocks that don't signal seg- SegWit because we want SegWit as the users of Bitcoin. And people started adding information to their Bitcoin node so you could look on the network and see how many supporters there were of the user-activated software. Uh, and so this comes along in early 2017, right before the consensus 2017 in New York City, a conference. And at consensus, we get the New York Agreement. And the New York Agreement says uh, it was signed by a bunch of miners and large businesses within Bitcoin, wallets and payment processors. And they said, we, the businesses of Bitcoin, representing our massive hash power and massive user bases, will activate SegWit and activate a mandatory hard fork to a larger block size. Conspicuously absent from this agreement were any Bitcoin Core developers. No, none of them signed this agreement. Okay, so you've got uh, miners and big companies who all have a um, a big financial incentive. Um, obviously, miners have a, a financial incentive, and then companies who have already had their um, their coding done and with a bigger block size have no need to uh, redo any of their code. And they have a lot of money in these systems that are already established. They have um, they have a big incentive to go with a, a bigger block size. They decide that this is going to happen without involving any of the people that are going to be able to make it happen. That's correct. And the thing about the the businesses, their business models were predicated on on-chain transactions. So if your company depends on on-chain Bitcoin transactions, then you want there to be more on-chain transactions because it makes your your support ticket load go down. A lot of people are, are opening support tickets with big wallets and saying, where are my Bitcoins? You guys stole them or I don't see them or it's not confirming or the fees are too high. And that costs a lot of money to run those support desks. And so the obvious solution for support problems is to upgrade the protocol, right? Wrong. No, it, there's a bunch of business models that are predicated upon non-full blocks. And they, they got the miners involved because they needed the miners to activate the upgrades. Um, the miner, there was a lot of discussion about whether bigger blocks are actually good for miners or not, because if the blocks aren't full, then when when the block reward ends in 100 years, there's not enough transaction fees to, to keep incentivize the miners and the security of the network goes down because the hash rate goes down. Anyway, so, you know, as in any political discussion, people don't think 100 years out. They barely think, you know, a week out. Right. So the, the short term solution already makes sense, uh, usually makes sense. So we get the New York agreement. It says somehow this upgrade is going to happen. They don't talk about who's actually going to write the code. And we get one or two developers beginning to work on what's called SegWit 2X. And SegWit 2X will activate SegWit with a hard fork 90 days later. Well, the timing of this is just happen- just so happens to coincide right before the user-activated soft fork is going to activate. And the New York agreement was signed just after the user-activated soft fork code was deployed to some nodes. Yet they claim that the user-activated soft fork had nothing to do with it. Yeah. So you have, uh, just so we can get the timeline straight, you have the, um, they figure out how to deploy SegWit immediate and, and, and set a date for this soft fork. And then immediately after they figure out how to deploy it, you have the New York agreement at consensus. 
that decides to deploy their version right before the soft fork is supposed to happen. Right. Yeah. yeah totally unrelated. Sure. sure. Okay. To- totally unrelated. Total coincidence. Okay. And so then the the long hot summer of 2017 wears on, and Segwit is still not activating. And so then there was an additional compromise. Some technical details where the miner said, "Okay, fine, we will finally activate the Segwit 2x." Um, and all, all the while, the user-activated software nodes are growing and growing and growing. I think they really they reached 15% of all the nodes on the network in a very long, slow, organic growth process. Um, now, the number of nodes on the network doesn't actually matter, but it is an indication of what's going on. It is you can you can take it uh, with a grain of salt. And so, long story short, <laughs> the SegWit gets activated just before the user-activated software goes into effect, and we get SegWit. Well, those members of the SegWit 2x camp now say, all right, great, 90 days from now, we're going to hard fork to a 2-megabyte block, and that is in early November, or mid-November. And we go along, we go along through the fall, and there's all sorts of no 2x Twitter hashtags going on about we don't want we don't want 2x it's a corporate takeover et cetera et cetera and it comes down to the wire and there goes out a message over the mailing list that says we're calling it off because there's obviously not consensus um, which should be obvious if one or two people on the mailing list can say it's over without really discussing with the community it never had consensus to begin with and then it turns out that the software they had written to deploy the hard fork. When the block height came for the two megabyte block, a couple people were still running the software and it actually halted. There was an off by one error in the code such that it it reached a condition where no additional blocks could be added to the blockchain, which is a cautionary tale. If the entire Bitcoin network had upgraded to that software, the entire Bitcoin network network would have halted. Game over. Wow. No more blocks. So how many developers were working on this this 2x code? One main developer with maybe a small handful of ancillary contributors. Okay. And all the decisions were made unilaterally pretty much in a very small group, not reaching rough, broad consensus like the open source software uh, development philosophy uh, says. Okay. So again, this goes back to, if you guys remember last week, I, I said, you know, with enough eyes, all bugs become shallow. You know, the when you only have a couple of people looking at it, it's it's everybody's human. You always make mistakes when you're writing code and you need other people to go back and check your code and say, hey, this is not correct. We need to fix this before we implement it. Um, yeah, man, I can't imagine if if the whole, you know, if everybody had gone over to this 2x and it would just shut down, um, man. OK, briefly. So just so we get our timeline correct. User-activated soft fork happens in early August. 2X happens, uh, or fizzles out rather, in November. Somewhere in there, we get Bitcoin Cash, or Bcash. So Bitcoin Cash was a proposal by a large miner that was targeted for exactly 12 hours after the user-activated soft fork was supposed to activate that said, if, if we're on the UASF chain... Maybe if or if we're not, I don't remember the details, but 12 hours after, we are hard forking two, two megabyte blocks. Without SegWit. Right. We're taking SegWit out, and maybe it's eight megabyte blocks. I don't, I don't know exactly. It, it's larger blocks and no SegWit. And so they begin developing that. Again, a couple people making all the decisions, not really open 
it is it was open source for the most part, but not very many eyes looking at it. And and thus, August 1st, Bitcoin Cash is born as a hard fork of the ledger that had the backing of a very large miner that committed to mining it for a period of time. And so it was really the first popular sustained hard fork of the network. And to clear up some misconceptions, it didn't double the money supply of Bitcoin. It rather credited all Bitcoin holders before August 1st. It credited them with the same number of Bitcoin Cash coins on the Bitcoin Cash chain. Part of the misconceptions are Bitcoin has unlimited money supply because anybody can fork it and that makes more Bitcoins. That is incorrect. Right. So they're they're incompatible. I can't send my Bitcoin to a Bitcoin Cash address or Bitcoin Cash to a Bitcoin address. Um, well, you actually could because they used the same address type, but the coins would go into a black hole if your wallet provider didn't help you out to retrieve them. Okay. So they, 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 they launched the coin as a contentious hard fork saying, we are going to take over and become Bitcoin. There was a lot of rhetoric around Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin, which as a sentence doesn't make any sense because if it was Bitcoin, you would just say Bitcoin is Bitcoin. Right. Well, I don't want to go too much into the politics and drama, but but I know that, that this was also why a lot of people started calling Bitcoin Bitcoin Core, even though Bitcoin Core is uh, maybe a development team, a software implementation, but not a currency. It's ugh, anyway. Um Lots yeah. of lots of great politics. Yeah, yeah. 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 Get on Twitter. There's lots of memes. Just go to the hashtag #bcash and, and look for yourself. I really don't want to get into trashing people on here. Um, oh, and then the the other thing, as far as a contentious, was they used the same algorithm, correct, so that they could pull miners off of the Bitcoin network. Correct. So they used the same SHA-256 mining algorithm, which means any anyone's Bitcoin miners could now point and mine Bitcoin Cash, which led to a an arms race in mining power. Um, uh, Bitcoin Cash deployed a difficulty adjustment algorithm that was very interesting, such that it made Bitcoin Cash much more profitable to mine than Bitcoin for short periods of time until Bitcoin Cash's difficulty adjusted way up and then it became less profitable and the mining power moved back to Bitcoin. And Bitcoin Cash had a significant percentage of the total mining power at certain points. But it must be noted that mining power follows price. Mining power does not create a valuable coin. Mining power creates a secure coin. But all of the miners that mined Bitcoin Cash simply followed profit opportunities. Right. And since they were on um, the same algorithm, I mean, my understanding is basically when the price of one coin would go up, they'd switch to the more profitable coin. And then when the other one would come up, they'd switch back. So it's not like they have, I mean, certainly you would have a a percentage that mine ideologically, um, but I think a lot of them were just mining for profit, whichever was most profitable. And in the same way that in a physical sense, you have um, mining companies that are going to mine whatever or or precious metal or whatever is most profitable. Yeah. If you had a if you had a, a mineral situation where half of your pit has gold in it and half of your pit has silver in it, well, then whenever one becomes more expensive than the other, you're going to mine that one because you can sell it at a higher price. Uh there were there was interplay between not only the price but also the difficulty, the relative difficulty of the two coins um, that that 
caused these shifts. And it was mainly the difficulty adjustment that made large shifts in the hash rate. So it caused a little bit of chaos for a while. And then Bitcoin Cash deployed a hard fork to change their 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 difficulty adjustment algorithm to make it more continuous, where the difficulty adjusts continuously uh, pretty much every block rather than every two weeks like with Bitcoin. So... Um, so they hard their original hard fork didn't work like they wanted, and they hard forked their hard fork. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, and so, how has this played out uh, from from then up until now? Obviously, we know two X kind of fizzled and died. Um, Bitcoin Cash was alive for a while, and I know that there were a few prominent people promoting it. Um, that's kind of died off some, I think, in the last couple of months. And, and you know, we, we've kind of talked about it on this show through the market minutes, um, but we've seen the transaction fees and the amount of time you have to wait for your, your transaction to clear to be incorporated into the blockchain has just dropped off dramatically. That's right. And as we sit here in early March 2018, um, the mempool has been pretty much empty recently. Uh, you can get transactions into a block for pretty much free. And what's also happened is that uh, Lightning Network has started to come online. And Lightning Network received lots of unfavorable politic, you know, political type statements and FUD. Uh, I don't know if you've defined the term FUD for your I audience. haven't defined yeah. FUD. I'm actually uh, doing a thing on Patreon for my for my supporters where I kind of once every couple weeks talk about a, a term. So uh, I talked about um, the term hodl a couple weeks last week, I think. So maybe I'll do one on FUD, but but f- we'll, we'll, we'll just say FUD for now. We'll, we'll go ahead and explain it. It's F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And it's just kind of um, misleading or misrepresenting information or news stories, right? That's correct. Um, though everyone does need to support you on Patreon. Go go and sign up. Um, but yeah, it's 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 much easier to generate false statements than it is to disprove them. There's an asymmetry. And so Lightning probably received more FUD than Segwit did. Um, but Lightning's, Lightning's being deployed. Um, it's a very, very cool technology. It allows exponential scaling. I'm sure you'll talk about that a lot more in the future. But the fees are completely gone, basically. Um, so Bitcoin, again, is fast and cheap right now. Cool. So, and certainly, uh, you know, as more people want to, um, you know, as it gets fast and cheap again, that will probably bring in an influx of new users, especially if we see the the dollar value continue to go up. Um, and so it's, it's not that all scaling solutions have Im- been implemented and everything is settled, but, um, you know, I hadn't talked about Lightning yet because Lightning required SegWit and I felt like we should do a good job of explaining how SegWit came to be before we got into Lightning. Maybe we'll maybe we'll have you back on the show to, to kind of go over Lightning some other time. Um, that's I think we're kind of running long on this episode here today. Um, trying to think. Anything else that you feel like is pertinent? This stuff is complicated. <laughs> and, and it's not easy to scale a distributed system and keep it coherent and running together. So... You know, if, if you've got opinions on this, have some humility, do your research, maybe read some code, figure out what the technologies are, why they're implemented the way they are, and what the trade-offs are. And always remember that the most important thing about Bitcoin is censorship resistance, 
decentralization. If you don't have those, you don't need a blockchain. You don't need Bitcoin. You just need PayPal. So everything else is secondary to those objectives. And those are why Bitcoin is so complicated to achieve those objectives. So keep that keep that on your bottom shelf. Awesome. And uh, if people want to see what you're doing, uh, they can follow you on Twitter. Is that right? Twitter at Clark Moody. Um, and then your exchange tracker and your street price indicator are bitcoin.clarkmoody.com. Is that correct? That's right. All right. I think that's going to do it for today's show. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to support the show, uh, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We are on iTunes and Stitcher as well as whatever other uh, RSS feed reading podcast app you use. Um, if you want to uh, support us financially, you can go on the website and there's a donation address. If you use a PayNim enabled wallet like Samurai, uh, you can also go on patreon.com slash bottom shelf Bitcoin and become a supporting member, a patron of the show. There's some cool goodies and extras that you can get there. And uh, the other way I talked about last week is buying uh, books from the Tuttle Twin series through my link bottomshelfbitcoin.com kids book it was a great series um, great way to uh, kind of in the spirit of bottom shelfing some of these ideas uh, you know explain it in a way that kids can understand or even even grown-ups I, like I said before I love these books because they they consolidate some of these really big heavy ideas into easily digestible examples and then once you understand the basics you can go back and read some of these thicker books but um, yeah so from Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening.